Welcome to the IPONS podcast, the collective voice representing residential property owners in Nova Scotia. I'm your host, Amanda Knight, and together we will discuss some of the challenges facing the residential housing industry, offer some insights, and more importantly, some practical solutions. On today's episode of the IPONS podcast, we have the pleasure of hosting two distinguished guests providing a variety of market rental insights. First up, we have Ross Cantwell. Ross brings over two decades of experience having worked as a real estate and valuation consultant. As the president of HRM Apartments, he has spearheaded the assembly and construction of a remarkable portfolio featuring over 500 apartment units. Ross is also the volunteer president of the Housing Trust of Nova Scotia, a significant nonprofit owning 300 units of workforce housing and actively involved in $50 million worth of construction projects. A former CPA and a graduate of MIT with a master's degree in real estate, Mr. Cantwell's expertise is truly multifaceted. Alongside Ross, we have Neil Levitt, the Vice President of Planning and Economic Intelligence at Turner Drake & Partners, a prominent Halifax-based real estate consulting firm. Neil and his team are at the intersection of community planning, development policy, and real estate economics, with a particular focus on housing-related assignments. Neil is also the chair of the board for the Affordable Housing Association of Nova Scotia, a key player in the nonprofit housing sector and coordinator of federal homelessness reduction and prevention funding. Let's get started. Well, welcome Neil and Ross. Thanks for coming in today. Great day. You recovered from the holidays and the new year. All recovered, ready to go. Perfect. And Neil? Nice to be back in a routine, honestly. There's only so much quality street I can eat in a week. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> So we are talking about market rental insights on this podcast. So we're going to cover a couple of topics here. First, we're going to jump into rentals.ca. And Neil, I'm going to look to you. Turner Drake completed a report for IPONS in December of 2022 comparing rental market analysis. Can you give us a high level on what you found in this report? Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the report was really looking to explain the differences between what data comes out of rentals.ca and, and similar sort of listing aggregator sites and more uh, traditional and, and established sources of rental market data, notably C or CMHC. Uh, and so what we were looking at is just kind of comparing the the difference in methodology of how that information is generated and really what it's measuring, um, because it's not necessarily that anything is uh, wrong or fraudulent. It's just that there's nuance around what it's actually talking about. And that is often lost in the conversation when it gets out in the public discourse and, and what people think it actually means. And in a nutshell, really, uh, rentals.ca and, and similar platforms, first and foremost, you need to understand that it's a content marketing strategy, right? So they're looking to get out into the media frequently with a new data point that then provides content for journalists. And, and that's how they drive traffic to their platform and it's a very legitimate uh, business strategy. But what they're measuring essentially is rental statistics and basically just average rent asking rent uh, gathered from online listings for, for available units across many markets. Uh, there's a, a lot of 
challenges with that type of data collection process. Uh, and it, it, because it's a private company, there's not a lot of uh, understanding or, or transparency around, are they correcting for some of the weaknesses of those methods? Or is that just kind of provided as is and, and how reliable is the data really? Uh, the the biggest challenge is, is just that, especially these days when you have a very tight rental market, there's very few available units, vacancy is very low. So the number of listings at any given time is quite low. Uh, and so the sample size that's in the data is also quite low. So you're making estimates or people misinterpreting the data are making estimates, making judgments about rental market conditions for tens of thousands of rental units. There's a hundred plus thousand households just in Halifax that are renter tenured households. And you're, you're extrapolating from maybe a couple dozen to a few low number of hundred uh, listings that are tracked by rentals.ca at, at any given month. So it's very difficult to, to understand how reflective of the big picture is that specific month's data. Okay, excellent. And I know, Ross, you had commented on a recent article uh, in the CBC about housing and some of the reported numbers around rentals.ca. Do you want to expand a little bit on your thoughts? Yeah, well, the numbers really jumped off the page to me uh, as a landlord because they made no sense. So uh, CMHC is a federal crown agency. It's been around since 1946. In the Halifax market, they would track every rental unit more than a three-unit building. So my understanding is that's about 60,000 units in the rental universe that they're tracking. They call me uh, several times a year and they want to know for each building, uh, what's the average rent for a one-bedroom in this building? What's the average rent for a studio? What's the average rent for a two-bedroom? They want to know how often units are turning over. They want to know vacancy rates. They collect all of this data and they call all the other landlords and then they publish it. So January of 2023, they published the average two-bedroom rental in the Halifax market was $14.49 per month. A couple months later, rentals.ca says it's $2,229. August, you know, so the timeframes are a little bit different, but rentals.ca is saying $2,229. And I looked at those numbers and I said, this can't be right. So I I went to their website. Um, actually, I looked at their website last week. They have 74 units on their website for rent as of last week. 74 units. CMHC is using well over 50,000 to calculate their statistics. And when you drill down into it, it's a five-bedroom house in the South End. It's a, a house out in Hammonds Plains. Um, it doesn't really reflect what the average Joe or Jane is looking at when they're going out to rent. So the, it's really distorted. I looked quickly at their data in Toronto. They have, um, it's a much bigger presence in that market and they have about five or six thousand units in any given point in time that they're trying to rent on behalf of their clients but the rental universe in the GTA is well in excess of a hundred thousand units so it's it's a very small sample size and it's an asking price typically for a brand new apartment building it's not an actual rental rate for a 1975 apartment building in Fairview that someone's renting for you know a thousand and twenty five dollars so, and I know we've talked about this numerous times on this podcast, that language is so important to make sure that we're using the right words and language and describing things. And data is as important, if not more, than when we're looking at these situations. Well, to use an example, I mean, it just keeps showing up in the media and the media are presenting these numbers as though they're gospel and they're not. They're incorrect. And what was really alarming to me was I was reading a policy wonk, was reading a, a, tra a Hansard transcript 
of a conversation that happened at Province House. And the opposition parties were basically saying, well, rentals.ca says that rents are 2000 whatever. And actually, you know, the, the existing government didn't even contradict the data. So everyone's getting sucked in by this and they start making policy decisions based on inaccurate data. And I think that's quite dangerous. Absolutely. Really scary, actually. That's great. And Neil, I did take one quote out of the Turner Drake report and it said the CMHC survey should be viewed as the authoritative source on long-term price trends and overall market conditions, which I think from the perspective you and Ross have given on this, uh, based on the number of units that they're tracking and the detail that they're tracking, like you said, Ross, that CMHC really should be deferred to the authoritative source. Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree completely with that. When you're looking at what is the average rent in any municipality, but let's say Halifax, CMHC will tell you what the average person who is currently under a lease agreement is paying. If you're just looking at rentals.ca, you're only getting a picture of a very small a small section of probably what's available because not everybody's going to be listing on the platforms that they track. Uh, but you're also looking at only units that are available for rent. And those are always, even in you know a, a high vacancy market, a minority of the entire uh, housing and rental housing inventory. So if you want to understand really what is the experience of the typical renter, CMHC is, is going to tell you that with a much greater degree of accuracy and you'll be, have a much more uh, detailed understanding of how that's changed over time because they will make sure that the statistics are uh, adjusted or, or compensated for changes in, in sample composition, things like that. If you're just going to look at rentals.ca, you're just going to say, okay, what is the average person who's looking to rent facing when they go to rentals.ca to, to Look, leasing opportunities essentially and that is useful uh, but it is comparatively rare I would assume that people kind of understand that nuance when they look at at the platform or when they look at one of the monthly rent report uh, content marketing pieces that come out the other challenge as well is is because this is a content marketing strategy the the reports are really just uh, you know a monthly opportunity to kind of update the figure and they'll give you the sort of month over month change as well as the year over year change but just looking back that far you don't really get an easy understanding of what that long-term trend is over time. And so there's a lot of volatility that happens even within the course of a year, just within market conditions itself, but also depending on what your uh, comparison is, whether, you know, last month was a, a big month or a, or a low month, yeah. whether last year was a big year or a low year, uh, that uh, percentage increase is really, for me, when I see it talked about in, in the media, the piece that is abused the most. And that doesn't, you, you know, you think about a parking lot. So I drive a brand new Range Rover into a Walmart parking lot. The average value of the car in that parking lot just went up. But for a person who comes out of the store who's driving a five-year-old Hyundai Elantra, it doesn't affect the value of their car. Mm -hmm. Right. So every month, every year, we're adding a, a component of new construction rental prices into averages. So, of course, they're going to go up. Yeah. But there are plenty of people in, you know, in older buildings that have, whose rents have not gone up as much. That's a great analogy. OK, on to topic two, housing starts. Ross, I'm going to start with you. Supply, supply, supply. How does either Halifax or the province sit uh, with regards to ha their housing starts? Halifax has traditionally been one of the most productive uh, housing markets in the country. So I did a bit of work um, in 2022 with Will Dunning out of Toronto, who does work for the Canadian Home Builders Association. And we took total housing starts for 36 centrist metropolitan areas in the country. So that's the Toronto GTA, Montreal, Halifax is one 
one of them. 36 of them. When you line all 36 markets up, Halifax was number four. Wow. Yeah. Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Halifax. Little old Halifax. Fourth most productive in the country. One of the things that people in the industry understand is that Halifax is a very unique market as well in that historically most of the rental housing production in this market has been rental based. A lot of the local developers have a preference for building apartment buildings that they own and manage over a long period of time versus say a Toronto market where you know 80-85% of everything that's being built is a condominium that gets sold. Now many of the people who buy those are also turning around and renting them out. Mm -hmm. But anyway when you take that same data set and you look at housing starts per capita purpose-built rental versus condo Mm -hmm. Halifax in 2022 was the number one market head and shoulders above any other market in Canada in terms of producing purpose-built rental housing. So I guess the message here is we got a pretty good development industry here. Mm -hmm. A lot of strong builders. Every year, it seems it's almost like an arms race in terms of people trying to make uh, nicer and better buildings. And yes, the costs are going up, but a lot of that is the commodities you're using to build an apartment building. You know, you have to buy a a refrigerator and a stove. Well, we don't make those here locally. If we have to import them from somewhere, we have to pay the going price. So the cost of everything has just gone through the roof. In the same way, the cost of groceries in the grocery store have gone up. The cost of insurance has gone up. The cost of everything. Um, So the cost of all this new construction is going up, but we're a very productive market. Can we produce more? Yes. But, um, you know, we're not like some markets where we we couldn't get out of the way of our own shadow. You know, Mm -hmm. we've been doing a very good job. Amazing. And Neil, what can you add to that from your side of things? Well, I'd say uh, yeah, I certainly agree with everything Ross said. And and Atlanta, Canada generally has been an area where that issue of how do we get more purpose-built rental mm-hmm. uh, housing, which is a, a big policy challenge and has been for many years across most of the country, has never really been an issue here. We've always been a standout in that regard. Uh, I think there's some sort of, uh, you know, you could say development industry preferences. or It's also a function of market conditions as well. The competition for a new condo in Toronto is a detached house in Toronto somewhere, and the price difference between those two is massive whereas historically at least if you wanted to live even right downtown Halifax you could buy a brand new construction condo for $500,000 or you could literally walk five minutes up the street and get uh, you know a decent very charming Halifax house with cedar shakes and everything mm-hmm. else for probably you know three and a half hundred thousand something like that yeah so the the cost competition just wasn't there the problem really and supply you know supply 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 as the mantra in response to our current housing issue there's definitely a need for it. But the problem is, I think, a lot bigger than really what uh, the people saying that understand, or at least most of them, because the idea is, okay, well, we just need to build more. Like Ross says, we have been building a lot very productively. The problem is, our whole approach to building, whether uh, it's Halifax, whether it's this country as a whole, is still nowhere near the peak of production that we were able to reach uh, back in the 70s. And that's kind of the focus that we need to, to have. How do we fundamentally change the process of development, change the, the building industry, change the regulatory industry, the uh, financial context of real estate investment mm-hmm. so that we can get back to a scale of production that we have done before with a lot less Uh, technology at our disposal, Mm -hmm. a lot less economic productivity at our disposal, and a smaller population. We built about 30% more housing uh, in the 20 years from 1969 to 1988 than we built in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of room there, but it's going to take big, big sort of nation building scale thinking to kind of do it. And then I guess from that will lead us right into the next part, which is demand. We did a larger portion of building during that time frame, but we've seen an exponential increase 
increase in demand over the past number of years. Ross, do you want to start me off here and and highlight some of, we'll say the top three areas that you see uh, as being an increase in demand? Where are they coming from right now? Well, national immigration levels have been, you know, uh, two to 250,000 people per year for the last uh, decade or so. Actually, last year, the federal government target was 500,000 people as immigrants coming into the country, which is great. There's aspects of our economy where boomers are retiring and we need additional workers, particularly we need additional workers in the healthcare sector. We certainly need additional workers uh, to help construct a lot of the housing because we've got a whole generation of people that were told you need to go to university and get that degree. And then we have no, we don't have brick masons. We don't have plumbers. We don't have electricians. I think the focus on the community college has been very good to try and get more people into that stream. Uh, We need to keep working on that. But uh, the average household size in Canada right now is about 2.4 people per household. Uh, And that will vary. Urban will be smaller. Rural will be a bit higher. So if you take 500,000 people, you need 200,000 homes just to house those 500,000 people that are coming in. Well, total housing production every year is about quarter million uh, houses across, you know, houses, apartments, duplexes across the country. So we're barely treading water. But then the real problem becomes when you start tracking those numbers, because we have international students aren't included in the in the immigration targets and temporary workers aren't included in the targets. And the data that's come out recently has shown that we've got more than a million people came to Canada last year. So back to our 2.4, call it 2.5 to make the math easy. If a million people come into the country divided by 2.4, we need 400,000 additional units to house them. And we're only producing a quarter of a million. So we're going into a deficit. So there's a real challenge there. The the second one drilling down further is the federal government sets a target for the country, Mm -hmm. but they can't control if I want to move to Alberta, if someone from Ontario wants to move here, the interprovincial migration cannot be controlled. And when COVID happened and everybody went home to work with, you know, Zoom and Teams and all these other things, all of a sudden, due to a, a, a shortage of workers, workers in Toronto and elsewhere said, you know what, I'm going out east and I'm taking my salary with me. And they're showing up in the Halifax market with a very good salary. Maybe they've sold something that they owned and they're bringing a bigger bag of cash. And that's putting a lot of upward pressure on housing prices in this market. And so it's, it's a double-edged challenge right there. Become one of IPON's valued corporate sponsors. Sponsorship with IPONS has many benefits, including exposure, visibility, and year-round marketing activities at our events. With IPONS virtual and in-person events happening frequently and a growing membership with over 45,000 units under management, this is a great opportunity to have your products and services showcased. For more information, visit our website at ipons.ca forward slash sponsorship. Um, And one thing that we've talked about, too, is COVID was very stressful on relationships and we saw a big breakdown in relationships as well. So those numbers aren't always tracked as well. You have a family where mom and dad are going their separate ways. Well, we need an extra house for that or apartment or whatever it might be. And over to you, Neil, uh, top, you know, one to three areas that you see a real increase in demand on housing in this province. Well, I think there's uh, there's a couple of things. It's very difficult 
difficult to know how durable are some of these trends that we've seen as a result of the pandemic? Is that, uh, you know, a new shift that, okay, this is a great idea and that's, this is the new normal going forward? Is it something that's going to go back to the way it used to be or is it some hybrid in between? It's a, it's a really tough time to be in the business of predicting the future. Uh, so I try to do as little of it as possible. <laughs> um, but if you look even prior to the pandemic, like there certainly were some by 2020 established trends of growth, whether it's from international immigration, the sort of more permanent streams of immigration, uh, we're starting to see a more uh, consistent and growing trend of, of inter-provincial uh, migration. So folks mm -hmm. typically in that context kind of uh, executing a retirement plan. So you sell your house in Vancouver, you sell your house in Toronto or something like that. Your kids have flown the coop and they're in the wind to all different communities. Let's go back out east where we always meant to, to get back to my parents are kind of half in that process now they've got a cottage out here but uh, but so there was there were these kind of longer term durable trends that were pushing us in the direction of growth and then the pandemic just really put the the pedal to the metal on that um, but uh, I think you know we're we're certainly in a situation where I it's without some significant policy change, especially at the federal level around immigration, we're probably going to have a consistent and elevated level of, of growth and demand going forward. Perfect. That's great. And the distribution of this demand, I think, is also changing. I mean, historically, the whole model was that, you know, the major employment center would be downtown. And so everybody would commute uh, downtown to go to work. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but you, if you look at the distribution of employment, Burnside is the second largest employment node in the province. Mm -hmm. And Bedford West, uh, the amount of, uh, you know, employment node there is growing and growing. So I think the future is a polycentric uh, downtown, much like Los Angeles or elsewhere, where there isn't just one downtown. There's multiple downtowns that have employment nodes. And that makes it a lot easier in the model going forward where, hey, I'm coming to work three or four days a week. But, uh, you know, I have a day or two of flex time where I work out of the house. I go home and crunch some stuff out. And when you're doing that, you know, if the employment node is Bedford West, well, you want to live around. Around Bedford West. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's going to change things. And I think that's helping to accelerate uh, what we're seeing on the Hans Corridor, which is interesting because developers don't see, you know, government or geopolitical lines. Um, they can take their capital from a project they've just completed downtown and they can go to, uh, you know, Elmsdale, Hans, some of these other areas and build housing where permits are coming quickly. Uh, it's stick frame. It goes up quickly. They can, they can turn a couple of projects. If you can be more productive with your capital mm -hmm. and cycle it through a couple of buildings and the time that it takes somewhere else with, uh, you know, with one one building, then that's what they're going to do, right? And I think we're starting to see that. And then that also changes uh, depending on where people are coming from, from the country, within the country as well. Because if you're in Toronto, you're in Vancouver, you can be half an hour away from your job site, but be in your car for two hours. So driving two hours in this area is actually quite lovely. And living out in Truro and working in Halifax, like you say, if you're on a flex shift and things like that is much more appealing to people. One thing I thought I'd mention, there was a, an op-ed, I think it was in the Globe and Mail shortly before for the holidays. And it was a fellow from the Fraser Institute, which I can, you know, take it or leave it. Sometimes I find them very dogmatic, but he wasn't really getting into a discussion of what we need to do. What he was pointing out, I think, is an important concept, which is that there's no, there's no easy answers. It's all just all we have to choose are compromises, right? The choice of where you live is a compromise of, of you know, are you close enough to your kid's uh, karate teacher versus how often you need to commute versus how much you need to spend for your house. There's no perfect solution for anyone. And it's the same on the demand side, sort of at a government policy level. Okay, well, do we tap the brakes a bit on immigration to help get uh, housing conditions under control? Well, there's implications to that too, because 
the push for immigration isn't coming out of nowhere. There's labor force, there's all kinds of big, complex, interconnected issues that come all through this. And so it's a very prickly, challenging issue with a uh, a need to weigh um, pros and cons because there's no there's no solution there's no course of action that doesn't come with uh, something undesirable happening. Well, and we've mentioned policies a couple of times, so um, another one of the topics here focuses on policies that seem to favor home ownership versus renting. So, Neil, I'll have you start uh, with regards to that because you had mentioned a couple of things before in a previous conversation you and I had about planning mortgage rates and terms and things like that and how that favors home ownership over purpose-built rental housing. Yeah, well, I mean, our entire society is designed to privilege and encourage home ownership. That was seen as, you know, the, the highest form of being, essentially, you know, as, uh, for the social unit in this country. And that uh, the concept was that renting uh, historically had been uh, a very difficult and, and challenging thing. And so to, to free the common person, you get them into home ownership. For many people, that's been very successful. It's we have among the highest home ownership rates in the developed world until you get to, you know, like city states like Singapore and that where it's 100 percent. But for a major country, we've we've done a very good job of that. The problem is we've kind of forgotten that that was a conscious choice and it's permeated so so many, so many parts of uh, our social order of, of policy. And it's not just real estate. It's like you say, it's tax and finance, everything to the degree that it's just not possible. We can get everyone into home ownership, And to the degree that there's a pretty significant proportion of our population that for, you could say, reasons that uh, that work for them or reasons that it's just a matter of, of the choices available to them will always rent. Uh, we need to understand that there's maybe time for the pendulum to swing back. And yeah, it's it's I think we're just at a point where we need to reevaluate those priorities a bit. Excellent. So, Ross, can you on the same topic, policies that favor home ownership versus renting, uh, get into the weeds a little bit um, into some more of the specifics on how you see that playing out for the average person? Well, a couple of things. Apartment buildings. Uh, so you have you have an apartment building, a uh, 50 unit apartment building next door to a 50 unit condo. Um, they're both paying the same rate uh, per hundred dollars of property tax yet the condominium gets garbage pickup included just like a single family house would whereas the apartment building does not and so the yeah so the apartment building owner has to spend eight nine ten thousand dollars a year to hire a third party company to go haul all the garbage away so that there's an instance where they charge the same property tax rate but mm -hmm. you don't get the same services why we've been un unable to figure out why that works the property tax assessment cap is another area where you know on the face of it hey little old lady on a five acre property on saint margaret's bay her taxes are going up 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 um, she won't be able to afford her taxes we're going to be foreclosing on her oh well let's put a property tax assessment cap in place that'll help her out and so uh, we'll set her rates very very low so now we have this property tax assessment regime which is only applied to single-family homes. It does not apply to an apartment building. So um, so what happens over time is you get this big distortion. You get two houses in Clayton Park that were built 25 years ago that are essentially the same house, that are roughly worth the same. And the person who's lived there for 20 years is assessed at a maybe 300000 And the person who moved in from uh, 
somewhere new recently, uh, the person who just moved in is probably paying an assessment of 700,000, six or 700,000. So things like that, anytime you start restricting the market and putting artificial regulations in place, be it the property tax assessment, be it rent control, all these other things over time with enough time played out, it starts to create distortions to the market. And um, anyway, so it's, it's quite a challenge. We actually tell all of our tenants, um, you know, one of the reasons your rent is going up is, you know, your property taxes are now $1,000 a year. And they look at me with their, what? I don't pay property taxes. Well, of course you do. We, we pay it on your behalf, but your taxes are about $1,000 a year for that apartment. They're shocked. And the garbage is shocking when you do that comparison between condo and apartment building. It makes sense when you explain it that way. Yeah. But on the surface, I would never put two and two together. The recent uh, announcement that the council wants to increase the property tax rate 9.7%. Most of my buildings in the last cycle had about a 15% increase in assessed value. We actually hired, I'll make a plug for Turner Drake. We hired Turner Drake <laughs> to go in and kind of duke it out with uh, with the provincial uh, PVSC mm -hmm. um, to get them down a little bit. But, you know, you take that increased uh, assessment value because the cap doesn't apply to an apartment building and then you increase the actual rate and it's a double Whammy. Which brings us to the rent cap, the dreaded rent cap. So um, we've talked about this in a number of podcasts and, and covered it. I want to specifically, since both of you bring uh, some experience with not-for-profits, how the rent cap has specifically impacted the not-for-profit. And Ross, I'll start with you on that one. Well, we have to start with rent cap, and I like to use the analogy of a senior's discount. You know, you give uh, people hit 60 or 65 and you give them a discount. Um, sounds good in theory, but I mean, there's plenty of seniors that can afford the full ride. They don't need a discount. I think the United Way has a advertising campaign going on right now where they show a large pie, might be a pecan pie or something like that. Um, and there's a third of it missing. And they said, look, there's a third of the people out there that are really in need and they need your help. Please donate to the United Way, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that one third is correct. Well, then rent control makes sense for about a third of the population. But it's a very broad based, it's like, you know, central bank raising interest rates. It's a very blunt tool and it's going to impact all sorts of things. So by restricting um, rent increases to a landlord um, on for everybody, when two thirds of those people could afford a reasonable increase, what they're doing over time is slowly distorting things. And what I see in some of my buildings is two people living across the hall from one another um, in virtually the identical unit where one has been there a long period of time and maybe they're paying $870 a month for a one, I looked at these numbers the other day, $870 a month for a one bedroom on the Halifax Peninsula. The person across the hall is paying, you know, $1,350. Um, why? Well, they're paying $1,350 because they have to subsidize um, the, the losses that we're taking on the unit across the hall. So um, there's a lot of distortions there. And the longer this thing plays out, it, uh, it just creates more problems for landlords. And uh, Neil, for yourself, how do you see the implications of the rent? cap from your involvement with the not-for-profits? You know, an ideal situation uh, is we have a very vibrant and robust uh, private market that meets the needs of, of people that, uh, you know, the majority of Canadians um, and, and you know, people that don't have housing challenges uh, that can kind of, uh, you know, take advantage of that system to provide them with the housing situation that they really prefer. But probably going forward, we would need to have in the total picture a larger 
subsection of that of the housing inventory which is operated and owned on a non-market basis and we would rely less on private for-profit market-based housing uh, developers and, and operators to meet that broader need and so there's maybe some rebalancing in terms of how big each of these sectors are but we shouldn't be using one to really do a job that the other needs to be doing i'd like to circle back to that question because i realized i answered it from the private landlord's perspective and you were asking me from the nonprofit. so in addition to managing my own portfolio of apartments i, I do volunteer um, with a nonprofit housing group and interestingly about a year and a half ago we bought a portfolio of five buildings 300 apartment units where we're in the middle of a $22 million renovation uh, project with these buildings. Uh, they need a lot of work. They need new roofs. They need new windows. They need, you know, furnace room upgrades. Some of them need the cladding stripped off and, you know, the brick taken off and all new cladding to stop leaks and those sorts of things. So when we acquired them, the reason we acquired them um, was the average rent was $784 a month. Now, these are buildings in downtown Dartmouth um, near the Armdale Rotary and Fairview, they're in good urban locations. So what's interesting is, does everybody need a $784 rent? And one of the philosophies of our groups called the Housing Trust of Nova Scotia, we are in that mixed income model. And we recognize that if we try to give everybody a subsidy, uh, we're going to drown because the operating costs for these old buildings are about $450 a month, right? That's heat, lights, taxes, insurance, repairs, snow removal, landscaping, all that money that you just, you take from the tenant and you go pay to other people. We don't get to keep that. So at $784, that leaves us with, you know, $350 or something like that a month um, towards a mortgage, which doesn't go very far. So the challenge we've had, so we're looking at it and saying, okay, well, what percentage can we keep as affordable? And with new construction projects, we were looking at a 50-50 model. We'd have 50% of the units at market rate and, and the, the profit from that would help us subsidize the 50% of the units that we kept affordable uh, to people that work and make modest incomes, people that make 30 grand a year, you know, households that are making 40 grand a year. That's kind of our target. Um, because we were able to purchase these buildings at a very modest cost, we're thinking we might be only have to go to about one third market and two thirds affordable. But then the rent cap rears its head. And so we have to treat everybody the same. And in the last year, we could only give a 2% increase. Well, we dearly love to find the people that, you know, are struggling even at 784 and say, look, you don't have to pay anything more. That would be our long-term goal. But to the people that can't afford, well, you know, you're going to have to pick up the slack here. Interesting. And that leads to our final topic with real estate really being the long game. I mean, it's not a, it's not a short-term venture when you're talking about these buildings that you've recently purchased. I'll make the assumption that you've purchased them probably from the original builder or? From the original builder. They, they were built in like 1968 to 1972. They're, they're great locations um, and they did a, a good job of hanging on to them, but they really need to be uh, rebuilt. And in some cases, you know, hard decisions like, you know, the most cost effective thing to do with this building would be to make everybody move out and go in because you go to the energy efficiency program. You, you can't be using oil or natural gas to heat this thing, greenhouse gas emissions. We all got to 
go to net zero. Well, the only way to do that is to upgrade the electrical feed into the building, which means it goes dark and without power for three to four days. And you have to pull new electrical feeds down the hallways because everything's got a 60 amp feed when it was built in the day when you had a stove and a fridge. No one had dishwashers and microwaves and heat pumps. So you got you to pull all new feeds to every unit, upgrade the, um, the load centers, the uh, circuit breakers in each of the units, put heat pumps in. To, well, there's no way you can do that with, with uh, an occupied building, right? Absolutely. And Neil, have you seen um, a change or, or seen any numbers showing some of the ex- existing buildings and properties that are 10, 20, 30 years old? People are looking to sell them now. How the not-for-profits do play a role in this from your, your side of things? Yeah, well, I think certainly the uh, the opportunity is there. Um, the problem with with the non for profit sector is just decades of of muscle atrophy of uh, you know very well put, significant. Well put, uh, well put. Yeah, yeah, you know, big decrease in in support coming from various uh, levels of government. Um, you know, there wasn't except for you know you find some examples across the country, but for the most part, none of them really got uh, enough of a portfolio, enough of an equity base to kind of keep themselves sustainable over time, and so the entire entire sector is really not ready to to take on, uh, you know, without significant support, the, the role that I think it needs to. Um, and so there's there's a timing, uh, a real kind of co- confluence of a few things going on right now, um, aside from just sort of demand and, and growth side that we already touched on. But when you look at the existing housing stock and how much of it was built in that heyday of the, the 70s and 80s, that all these properties are need a lot of CapEx. Uh, it's a really great time for those owners who don't want to deal with all that work to sell them to someone uh, who, who will do it and buy it at a price that makes that work. And and there's a lot of demand for real estate investment, or at least there has been uh, up until it, recent interest rate trends. Um, so there's there's really a race going on, I think, between a completely outgunned nonprofit sector and what you typically see in a, in a market-based housing system where the older stock, it now, you know, market prices have gone up. It now has an entrepreneurial opportunity to buy a property, reinvest in it and achieve rents that, that the market will support that make it all financially viable. Yeah. And, and time um, is well put because... You know, governments, there was a lot of social housing that was built in the 60s and 70s, and then it all just stopped. The funding dried up and all the federal governments that were in power were equally culpable on this. Mm -hmm. Just the flow of money stopped. And so what happens if you've got a a nonprofit or some other group out there? It's more than atrophy. Um, They can wither away and die. So for this sector to be viable, there needs consistent funding coming, uh, regardless of which you know, government is in power. So I, th- I, I have hope that if the government and I think the current provincial government is really doing a great job of putting the money where their mouth is, um, you know, they're doing things in healthcare, they're doing things in housing. So I, I think we just need to keep that funding going and build capacity up because uh, the nonprofit sector is not going to save everything, but you know, it can be a small piece of the whole puzzle. And I think that's a fantastic way to wrap up. So thank you so much, Ross and Neil, for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the iPons podcast. We hope you found the discussion insightful and engaging. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Interested in learning more? Head to our website, ipons.ca, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, Multi-Res News, and follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn, where we are consistently sharing news that affects rental housing providers in Nova Scotia. Until next time.